All right, all right. Welcome to another episode of Gay Men Going Deeper. Today, I'm your host, Callan Brecken, and I am so excited to be bringing on today's guest. But first, I want to mention that very shortly in August, we are going to be opening the doors again for the Gay Men Going Deeper membership. So if you're interested in that, get on the wait list. The information is in the show notes. And so without further ado, let's jump into today's episode. I have the amazing, the legendary Christopher O, aka Christopher Ulrich. He is voted the 14th most influential burlesque performer in the world in 2019. And he was voted number one in Europe. Hello. And he was also Mr. Gay World 2013. Yes, Queen. And <laughs> he is in the Burlesque Hall of Fame for Most Dazzling, which he won in 2018. So thank you for coming to talk about this amazing topic for exploring the feminine. I There was nobody else I thought of. I was like, no, Chris is going to be perfect for this. So introduce yourself, Chris. Hi, well, yes, well, after that grand introduction, I don't feel there's much more I need to say, but hi, I'm Chris O, and yeah, I'm so happy to be here and catching up with Callan and um, hopefully all of our viewers out there mm -hmm. to describe and explain and discuss a little bit more about what I do in life and leisure and art. Right. So you have a very, very colorful history and past. If I'm, if I'm correct in saying you were born in South Africa grew mm -hmm. up in New Zealand and mm -hmm. now you live in Europe because you know it's, it's where a lot of your heart is and I know because uh, we've met in Europe and then we also met I think originally in Vancouver maybe? correct yes was it, no no it was Toronto at the World oh, it Pride Tr yes it was Toronto World Pride is where we originally met um because you won your Mr. Gay World in South Africa as well did you not I won it in New Zealand and then the competition for Mr. World was in Antwerp in Belgium Oh, I thought yours was in South Africa. Well, they had it in South Africa so many times. They had a lot of South Africa. So yeah, so you've been all over and traveled all over. And you've also had quite a story because your past, you weren't always this physique of a, of a human being. You weren't always this like brilliant body, stretched legs galore, galore. Um, so tell us a little bit about your past and how you came to exploring this feminine side of yourself and then turning into the world's most sought after boylesque dancer well goodness that's a, it's quite the journey it's taken a lifetime to get here <laughs> literally um i guess you know i am a little south african boy who grew up in a very religious community in south africa evangelical and um ever since a young age i had been bullied i guess for being different and slightly effeminate um long before i even knew what effeminate was <laughs> And consequently started um, this mental health episode, which led to a lot of weight gain until um, I was morbidly obese by the age of 14. Um, this then ensued, along with many, many other factors, into my darkest period, which was um, my, my suicide phase, I guess we can call it that, to be quite frank. And from that, discovering my inner self, or at least my inner fight, my fight to be a better person, my fight to see another day and my fight to finally live the life that I wanted to. And of course, it took a few years down the line to kind of break into that space. Um, 
the move to New Zealand um, in my when I was 16 certainly helped that process by giving me a breath of fresh air and a brand new place to sort of start exploring the person that I wanted to be. Uh, furthermore, um, it wasn't until my university years that I started kind of allowing myself to explore my sexuality, even though I knew I was gay, I'd never actually been gay in any sort of physical or social sense. And of course, at university, it's that time when everything is just open for exploration, you meet people of like mind. And yeah, um, I fell in love with uh, movement, um, thanks to my very first partner who happened to be a fitness instructor, and discovered that I actually had this amazing love and connection for movement that I had never previously accessed. And from that, I fell in love with performing by trying drag for the first time and got the opportunity to create shows and dances, even though I didn't know anything about it. Um, but that feeling of being able to create um, and be creative really just fueled me from a space deep within. And that, in, that then motivated me to take up um, dance at university, um, a full-time dance degree um, specializing in contemporary and ballet. And thereafter, going into the professional dance world. Um, and then many years down the line, after kind of many chops and changes in the, the dance industry, I decided to open up my own dance company, started doing works that I felt like I really wanted to invest my time and energy into. And from this company, uh, Chris O was born, this um, egdesiest wonder who likes to take off his clothes and... Uh, create really challenging sort of art, which combined classical ballet, old theatrical costume, God knows how many rhinestones and feathers. <laughs> oh my God, I've seen photos of your place. It's outrageous. Um, and yeah, it was just kind of the thing that married all of these things that I'd love about creativity, costume construction, makeup, uh, performance and dancing. It just seemed to fit all into this one little bubble called burlesque. And that's when I kind of took to the world to see if I could make this a living. And to my surprise, it is now the thing that I do. So yeah, it's, it's I mean, that is of course the very foreshortened version of everything, but that is essentially the, the story. Wowzers. And that is such a story. There was so much that was covered in that, yeah. in that story. <laughs> and I'm mean, so like, excited. <laughs> I mean, if you want specifics, feel free to ask because I'm an open book. I always have been for a long time. Oh, yes. We are diving into the specifics. And also one of my favorite things about you is that when you say drag, it's not your typical drag that we would see on like RuPaul's Drag Race. It's a very like androgynous mix and match. Like if you go to your Instagram, you you have your face done, your wig and hair, but then you still have your, it's, we'll dive into that later. But first I want to we'll go back. Into- I want to go back to the kind of like the beginning. So you made your move over to New Zealand at 16 and that's when you started to kind of be able to explore, but you were, were you still like obese and overweight at that time? And how did that start coming off? And when did that transition happen? So the, the major weight change and transition happened when I was actually 14. Um, after my second attempt um, was when I had that like, light bulb moment that said you know you need to stop being the victim and it was in that moment that I decided I was going to change my life 
And part of that was taking control of my emotions and my habits, because I feel like it's very easy to be caught in a victim mentality and always feel like the world is weighing down on you. But the funny thing is, is that if you're stuck in that mentality, the world only weighs down on you. You never see a way out. But I found that if you laugh, people laugh with you. If you cry, people usually beat you. So what are you going to do? Are you going to laugh or are you going to cry? And I was like, no, I'm going to find the joy that I need to find in life. And I'm going to take back control of my being. And the change was dramatic. The first thing I did was I decided to be vegetarian because I read somewhere in some book that it was healthy. And because my family grew up eating chops, chips and vegetables, um, you know, it was one of those things that my health was my primary concern. And it was for me, the one thing that was out of control and I couldn't control it. So I went vegetarian for about a year um, and then dabbled in it for a few months after that. Um, and the weight dropped dramatically. Um, I kept away from sugars and sweets and ice creams and things because I knew that that was contributing to that. And instead of seeking comfort in food, like I had every time I had a bad day, which was almost every day, if not hourly, um, you know, I would just go into the, the lolly cupboard and just pull out whatever I could and, you know, make myself feel happy in the moment. But that obviously was the worst thing I could have done for myself. And in fact, it was just a negative loop cycle. So I found a class called Tai Chi. Um, and I was so big at the time that movement was very difficult. So I couldn't go and just do things like other people. I had to kind of ease my way in. And Tai Chi was this art form, which was very soft and fluid and, you know, allowed me to access movement in my body without overtiring me or hurting me. And after a few months of that um, and the diet combined, I lost a lot of weight. And the teacher of the class came up to me and was like, hey, Chris, you're doing really, really well. I think you'd really benefit from maybe coming to our karate classes. So I joined karate as well. I would do the, the three classes back to back um, every Tuesday and Thursday, I think it was. And yeah, so by the time I got to New Zealand, I had dramatically lost a lot of weight from being in the 120s to you know, now somewhere between the 80s and 90s kilograms. Wow. Um, yeah, I know. It was quite the transformation. And yeah, so when I got to New Zealand, I wasn't as, um, what's the word? I wasn't as self-conscious as I used to be in South Africa. Um, and obviously the people didn't know my journey there. So I could literally start afresh as this new kid and nobody had to know about it. And in fact, no one in New Zealand even knew about it until about 2012 when I did New Zealand's Got Talent. <laughs> and this whole backstory. You were on New Zealand's Got Talent? I was. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I talk to you, there's like new information that comes out. And I'm like, wait, what? Yeah. So, um, yeah. It, and like keeping my backstory to myself was something I it was very private to me and I had a lot of shame about it and I couldn't I didn't really access in my mind how this transformation story could be useful or even inspirational to others and like I said it wasn't until I was in New Zealand's Got Talent where they were kind of like putting me out there to the public and asking questions that um, I even realized that hey this is actually quite an amazing transformation and I hadn't even myself seen the difference until that moment. It was quite I, something special. 
Wild. That's amazing. So, so you said like moving over to New Zealand was kind of like a fresh start. You could be, you were 16, you could be yourself and a different self than you were back in South Africa. And then you started doing dance at the, like later on, I think. Much later on. Much later on. So so my first dance class at the grand old age of 22. (laughs) Yeah, because I remember you started dance like later than the average person. Like most people go into dance as kids and then they're like, oh, your dance career, you only have so much time. But you started at 22 and, you know. Most people would have already been professional. (laughs) And may I ask how old you are now for the audience? I'm a grand old age of 35. Right. Okay. And you're still (laughs) rocking it on stage. So you can go forever. But so when did that start happening? And why did that come about? So it was a it was a gradual progression, because like I said, when I got to university, and I went out for the first time to a gay club, I met my first boyfriend just right out the gate, bang. Um, He wasn't obviously my boyfriend on the night, but we met, we shared numbers. And then the whole dating process started and eventually we started seeing each other and he was a personal uh, trainer and fitness instructor. So I used to go to all of his classes um, and I was Gumby as all hell. Like I didn't have a left foot from a right foot. It was, I don't even think they were related, different bodies, <laughs> but you know, I stuck with it. And over the course of almost two years that we were together, I became his shadow. Almost people would look to me to see the choreography. So there was this latent ability that I didn't even know I had in my body to pick up this choreography or even that connection uh, to the material was just so, I don't know, it was so fulfilling for me to be able to get the little step or to be able to kick my leg that little further and, and, you know, suddenly becoming more inhabited and capable with my body was something that was very new to me. Um, And yeah, like I said, there was, I guess I must have had a lot of natural talent. I was told I did, but I didn't believe it. And after we broke up is when I went back into the nightclub scene. I was going to check it out. And pretty much on my first night out after him, I got offered a go-go job (laughs) as a go-go dancer. And I didn't even know what go-go dancing was. It was like, so what do you do? Oh, you just go up there in your little undies and you just dance on the stage. I was like, okay, that sounds like fun. And I get paid for it. Yep, that helps pay the bills while I'm at university. So why not? And it was a few weeks after that, that um, somebody came up to me and was like, oh my God, you're such a queen. You should do a drag. And I think they meant it as a bit of a, um, as a, as like nudge, nudge. As and a stab, yeah. actually, A stab. And I was like, actually, um, that sounds like an awesome challenge. <laughs> so, so I entered a drag competition, having never done drag in my life. Um, and it was one of those like four weeks, every week you get a different challenge and you have to do a different thing. And I ended up winning the competition and going to Sydney Mardi Gras and performing there. <laughs> and my first time ever doing drag was on the first night of the competition. I didn't even know how to put on makeup properly and, you know, just slapped it I was going to say, girl, like what hot mess did this look like? Listen, it was rainbow eyebrows that were like up here, you know, like... <laughs> It was every color you could fit on the face kind of uh, scenario. But, you know, it, it has obviously refined since somewhat. <laughs> um, and like I said, it, and from this opportunity that I won and going to Sydney, I got offered to choreograph the New Year's Eve show at our local gay pub, the Family Bar. Oh, yeah, Family. Yeah, yeah. And at Family Bar, um, 
I kind of just really fell in love with this ability to kind of put shows together, create dances, create costumes, create different makeups, looks and ideas. And this, all of this for me was just like amazing because I am a super creative person. I always have been my entire life, but I never sort of found something that could match my artistic tendencies with my love of moving my body. And voila, dance. And so it was kind of like this, this, you know, golden platter moment. And I really fell in love with performing. And it was while I was performing at Big Gay Out in New Zealand that um, I got approached by these two guys after the show. And I said, you move really, really well. And we're currently looking for a dancer for a show that we're, we're a part of. And we're wondering if you'd want to be maybe our male lead. And I mean, like, it's a bit of a backhanded compliment when you're doing drag and they ask you to be a male lead. But uh, listen, I do it. I was so happy. And it was actually from doing this uh, performance that the seeds of being a dancer were first planted. Um, the choreographer for the act that I was doing is actually a renowned New Zealand choreographer, Tairoa Royal, as part of Akureka Dance Company. And he came up to me after our first class and he's like, have you ever done dance before? And I'm like, never, never. And he's like, you know, um, you, you are very strong. You have a natural line and you seem to pick things up really, really well. Have you ever considered being a professional dancer? And I laughed at him. I really did. Um, I said, I'm 21 years old. I think professional dancers have been training all their lives. I'm professional by now. There is no way I could catch up or even make this a living. So thanks for the interest, but I'll just I'll just play for now. And it's, it's really funny how those like seeds, they sit there and they start to germinate. And it was just after he'd said that Com- Complexions New York City Ballet came to New Zealand and I watched them do a show. And the ballet trucks, the trocaderos came as well. And I remember seeing the trucks because, you know, I was doing drag and I, I had this love for dance and seeing them do like classical ballet on point in drag with these full on costumes. And I was just like, oh, this is everything I want to do in life and more. Everything. And like I said, seeing New York City Complexions Ballet and sitting in the audience, I could not sit still. My entire body was moving and jostling in the directions of the dancers I was focusing on. And it's like, this is a sign, Chris. You're like, you want to do this. Your body is telling you to do this. And at that same show, Ty Roa was there again, the choreographer. And he came up to me and asked me, what do you think of the dance? And I said, listen, you're right. I, this is absolutely what I wanted to do. And he's like, well, my date for the night happens to be the head department for the School of Dance at Unitech. You should swap numbers. So she gave me her card. I went for an interview next week and they accepted me into the dance program on his uh, recommendation because the, the application process had already shut down. And she said, you come so highly recommended by Ty that we're going to accept you into our course. Wow, just by chance. Just by chance, like it, the universe literally was like shoving it in your face, and that's and I mean this is pretty much how I live my life. Universe, tell me where I need to go, and I go like <laughs> right. <laughs> right, okay. So you go on this epic adventure just to start becoming a dancer, and then mm-hmm. you train. So training takes two years. How many years were you at university? Three years full time. Three so... years full time. It was a full day and sometimes seven days a week for almost six months of the year. Like it was 
one of the hardest things I think I've ever done in my life. And because I've done this, I can always tell myself, like, Chris, this is easy. You did dance school with no dance background. Like, you can do this. <laughs> right. Suddenly, I was in a class full of people who had been competitive dancers since the age of four. And here I am not even knowing first position when I go to a ballet class. Like, it was completely nuts. Oh, my goodness. Talk about, like, uh-oh, uncomfortable. But you made it through. I made it through. And, like, I was so proud of myself because I got I went into that course knowing, like, okay, Chris, this is going to be stupid hard. And you're going to hurt. You're going to cry. And believe me, there was enough crying and tears and bruises and bl- cuts and blood. And, like, it was just everything and more but out of the almost 40 people that we had enrolled in our first year i was one of the 12 that graduated holy crap only 12 graduated from almost 40 people damn gina so you know i put in that effort and i stuck with it even though i woke up mornings and i don't think i could even walk you know you somehow got to that bus you somehow got to the class and you somehow picked yourself up off the floor and you worked. And, and that was what I wanted. I needed. I, I knew that this was my shot. And if I didn't stick to it, it wasn't going to work. Right. And so you graduate and you have this love of drag and this dancing now. And you start mm-hmm. pairing that together. So let's go on that journey of like exploring that like drag and femininity and like just like expressing yourself. Because I think one of the most beautiful things about you, because we've known each other for years, one of the most beautiful things about you is that like you have this amazing, like you are one of the most kind, genuine people I've ever met. And you have this energy where it's like out on the outside, you fit that bill of like, you know, perfect rip abs, beautiful body. You would look like a lot of people would look at you and be like, oh, she's like that. And then you meet you and you're the kindest soul in the world. And then you see this other aspect of you where you get in drag, but it's not like quintessential drag and you Mm. put on these dance shows and it's just like a whole new world. So when did you start (laughs) pairing that together? And then boom, burlesque started happening because like you just like skyrocketed. It, it happened very quickly. It was, so breaking it down is rollback. So after my professional dance career in contemporary, I then went into commercial dance, um, dance for several commercial companies. And there was always this kind of like, I love what I'm doing, but I'm never feeling like I'm not creative or contributing or, you know, I'm not doing what I need to do for myself. The, the, the feeling that I had when I did drag initially was to be able to create but now being a dancer, I never create, I just do. And it was always the straight laced, like guy partners girl does the little guy part, but never actually does more. And that really frustrated me. So that's when I opened up my own dance company. And as part of my dance company, I put on shows for like the Auckland Fringe Festival and um, also the uh, Pride Festival. I had my own show. And in these shows, I started creating narratives that I wanted to explore, whether it was like, good and evil, mandrous woman, like feminine blur, put everything in a melting pot and stir it and see what happens. I wanted to play with these things um, as a social commentary, but also as a form of like exploration within myself in the subject matter. Because, you know, there's always this like, I love this, but I'm not allowed to do this. This is what I look like. So this is what I have to do, but that doesn't always fit the brief. And so I wanted to create work that I could do what I wanted to do and explore the things that I wanted to explore without feeling like I had to be one thing or another. 
And so having the company allowed me to create these works where we delve into issues of like sexuality in gender in, you know, all these things. And yeah, um, I got approached by a theater. Um, it was a nude theater. So they wanted to create art and uh, performance that wasn't limited by, um, you know, the um, mor moral codes of uh, dress sense or I don't know how to explain that. It's it's kind of like a strip club without the stripping. Yeah. Yeah. But they want to so like so like crazy horse where women can have their boobs and bits out, but it still be art. Mm -hmm. And so I got to work as the curator for this theater. And I worked with all the individual artists, helping them to create performances that they felt embodied the essence of themselves, but also was on a very high-end level. And when this theater unfortunately uh, closed, I was approached by one of the performers that I mentored to discover that she was the uh, producer of the New Zealand Burlesque Festival and several shows. And she was like, hey, Chris, I know you don't do burlesque, but I don't think I know anyone who would be better suited to this art form than you. Can you come up with uh, an act for a 1920s art deco show to be had in two weeks? And I was like, yeah, sure, why not? And so off we went to the show and they were like, so what's your, what's your stage name? And I'm like, Christopher Olwage. And he's like, but that's your real name. I'm like, mm, I don't want to change my name because I already have like this following of people from the Mr. Gay world, from New Zealand's Got Talent, from all the public ambassador roles that I've had over the last umpteen many years uh, working in the community. And they go, okay, well, that's fine. We'll just play with your name on stage. And that's how Chris O was born. Introducing to the stage, Chris. Oh, <laughs> and we just took off the rest of my surname and just kept it. Oh, so it, it was perfect. Amazing. Um, and yeah, so this is how I started in the burlesque world. And I created firstly performances that were very feminine, but I kept it very masculine in the face. Um, I hadn't really kind of transgressed back to drag at this point yet because I can't, it kind of wasn't something, I still had a bit of, um, not anxiety, but when I did drag um, in the early days, I hated the fact that everyone started thinking of me as being either trans or gender, gender dysmorphic, uh, because I just became associated with being something other than what I was, and that was just me. And and so for me, that, that challenge meant that it kind of like tainted slightly the enjoyment for me. They tried to box you in. Exactly. And that was really annoying. And it wasn't for, sh I was then working as the, not the events manager, but the ent entertainment manager for um, New Zealand's Gay Ski Week, the largest gay ski week in the Southern Hemisphere. Yeah. And I was in charge of the dances and the performances and the spectacles, all the live entertainment. And um, during the show, I had booked a drag queen to come down for the final party to be a part of our finale act. And on the day of, the day she was supposed to catch her flight in the morning, she was like, oh, I've had a roof with my boyfriend. I don't think I can come down. And there was this massive, like, oh, shit moment. Like, what do I do? And I was like, well, there has to be a drag queen or us, you know, there's, they're going to burn down the building. So I did it myself. But I didn't, but I kept my boy costume and just did my face, completely drag. And thus was born this idea that you could combine the two 
and I managed to find this amalgamation of like keeping my body and playing with the femininity of the face and I kind of found this stride and I really loved it because then it was obvious that I wasn't trying to be one thing or the other it was an amalgamation of both and recognized as such and that for me sat far better on me and yeah thus was born the the drag persona with the the masculine body and and I always tell this to people what I do now is is drag but I I don't call it like androgynous I call it hypergendered because I am like hyper feminine and hyper masculine at the same time so I'm this hypergendered being that explores like the epitome of femininity and the epitome of masculinity and just slaps them together that's actually a really great description because like I was like I was trying to figure out like how to describe like when somebody goes to your Instagram, they'll know exactly what we're talking about. Like once you see you in those outfits and what you're doing, they go, oh, yes, that is a perfect description of exactly that. Yeah. <laughs> and I and I was telling people before, because it's like when I got this opportunity to start doing things that are traditionally more feminine and putting them on myself like classical ballet on point, I fucking love this, but men don't do this. The men traditionally are not allowed to do this. Um, if not just for training ankle strength, they never perform on point. And for me, it's like, no, this is the one, one of those things that make me want to dance is to be able to dance on point. And now I do that for myself and I still have my masculine body and go on. You tell me that I'm not allowed to do it. Go on. I dare you. Like, <laughs> right. The world's always telling you, you can't do anything. And it's our job to be like, mm, I'm going to do it. And I'm just going to put this in front of you and say, like, yeah, you you say that, but I'm going to show you otherwise. And I'm going to show you that it can also be just as beautiful, just as captivating and just as valid. And so it's it's important. And I find that being able to explore that hyper feminine side actually makes me feel even more engendered in myself. Like there's a funny... There's a funny thing that happens when I play with the feminine. It makes me feel more masculine. When I wear heels, my legs and the muscles innervate in a way that makes them feel stronger and bulbous, like they just always like, so like I, I look more masculine. When I have that skinny corset on and I look almost like I'm split into two, it's almost like those old superhero cartoons, you know? And I just, it's, it's just so funny that things that are supposed to be the trappings of the feminine are actually things that embolden me and make me feel more connected to myself as this gender spectrum person, being able to utilize and inhabit both that hyper feminine, but also the masculine. And you do it so beautifully and so well. And obviously, uh -huh. because everybody notices, like you wouldn't be number one in Europe for burlesque if it wasn't true. So let's jump into a little bit of that. Now you are living in Geneva, correct? Correct. For so the last three years. Ah, I love Geneva. So you're living in Geneva and you're doing, you know, obviously pre-COVID and all of that, when you were doing lots of shows and doing all the burlesque and the boylesque. Um, mm -hmm. So what's... What's that energy like to be able to express yourself on stage and be in Europe and do this art form? And how is it growing in the world? And are there more people who are like you now who are kind of coming out of the woodworks who are like, oh, well, if he can do it, I can do it. There is so much of all of that, all of that. 
so living here, firstly, being able to do this as a living um, is one of the greatest gifts and privileges I have ever been able to accept and, and have. It is um, certainly the culmination of, a, of many, many years of hard work. And to be able to sit here today and say that I'm living the dream, albeit um, slightly stunted by COVID at the moment, um, I believe is going to kick off again at some point. And it is incredible. And not only is it incredible, but the fact that I get to travel the world, if not most of Europe, doing what I do, and also realizing the impact that I have in being able to do that, the number of times that I've had people come over to me and be like, I don't know if you're a boy or a girl, I don't know what this is, but um, I find this just fascinating and interesting and beautiful and you are art and for a straight man to come over to me and say that I feel I find is like that's a win that's a win for our team because we're changing minds and people are realizing that hey there's a lot more to this black and white thing there's this whole spectrum of color in between that we're just not even acknowledging and to have people come up and have that reaction to me first and foremost is one of the best gifts of what I do um moreover um to to do what i do and to live as openly and as honestly as i do in my being and aesthetic it also is a sort of um permission for people to allow themselves to explore themselves and i feel that it's so important because without role models or people out there doing this you often think that you're weird or you're different or you're not valid as a person because you have these strange thoughts I'm like, no, not at all. You are part of the, the amazing colors that this tapestry is made out of. And how sad would it be if you had to conform when you know that inside you're this beautiful butterfly, but instead you, you, know, you hold your chrysalis over um, because society says you must. Don't live, be free. There's nothing that no one's going to tell you that is worth hearing if you think that you are happy in yourself. Listen, other people are going to have opinions, but what you do for yourself, that is the most important thing. And the one thing that people forget is that any interaction you have in life, when someone talks to you, is not even about you. It's from their point of view in life, the things that they have gone through, the things that are challenging them. You are not even in that. You just, for them, trigger these things. And it's not about you. It's about them and their journey. So we have to be so kind and so forgiving to people, even the naysayers and the haters, because they're having a hard time finding themselves. And that's, I think, something important because living your truth means that they get to see that this is possible, that there is, a, there is an end goal, there's a silver lining, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And you could be that beacon for them. Mm. Oh, you're just so beautiful. <laughs> I just like, oh, I like everything you just said, everything you just said. And it's also one of the biggest reasons why I celebrate pride for myself personally. It's not for me. It's for those people who are in that space who can't celebrate pride. It's for those countries and places where they can't be gay openly. That's why I celebrate pride. So they can see somebody else and go, you know what? I might not be able to do this here, but other people can do it. And they're celebrating for me and they can live vicariously through that. And, you know, That's that true. can be many different things for many different people. There's many different ways to celebrate that pride, but you celebrate your pride every time you get up on that stage and you just are yourself and you have people come up and go, this is amazing. 
all of this. <laughs> but listen, it doesn't stop at the stage. I mean, I go down the street wearing my moo's and my necklaces and sometimes I go out in heels. Why? Just because it, I fucking want to. Like, the thing is that I don't ever want to hold myself back from living in my true authentic self because I feel like I have done that for so long. Those times that I suffered when I was a teenager where I thought about taking my life because I... I couldn't be who I was or wanted to be. And I've been there. I've done that. I know that hurt. I know that pain. And I know the pain that was caused to me by others believing that that was the way that they should have been. And that is so, so far removed from my reality now. And I'm just going to be like, no, the only person that I can be honest to in any moment is myself. And Love it. If I want to, I'm gonna go outside there in my moo and my waist and my big old baggy pants and my heels, and I'm just gonna live my life. And the funniest thing is, is that I have never received hate for it. Never. Like people are like, but people aren't they gonna say things? I'm like, I don't know. I think once they see the thigh muscles and the heels, they kind of like step back. <laughs> They're like, "Ooh, this bitch could cut a bitch." <laughs> I don't want to go up to up uh, head to head with this like six foot eight drag queen with like thunder thighs and a, and a big stiletto steel point. Like, it's... but the thing is, is that I go up with such confidence in myself and knowing that I am who I am, and I go out with this kindness and this energy of giving and. And wanting to be, you know, a part of it all. And I'm, I always share kindness. I, I'm one of the most non-judgmental people because I made a vow to myself I that I would never be that because I was on the receiving end of that. And I know how it made me feel. And so my entire life practice is to constantly catch myself in moments where I feel like, no, Chris, you don't have the right to think that about someone. Yes, someone can do something shitty, but you've also got to remember that, hey, People come from their own places and they're struggling with their own demons. And you cannot be the person that buys into that. You have to be bigger. And so kill them with kindness has, has been a motto of mine for many, many years. And I love that. And I, I can attest to the fact that you are literally one of the kindest, nicest people in the world. When, you know, back in my flying days, I came to Vienna and I was just like, hey, I'm going to be in town. You want? You're like, yep, I'll meet you. I'll take you out. Like you were just, you were there, you were ready and you were just so kind. And it was just like, anytime, even when we met in New Zealand, it was just like, yep, of course, like you had been, had a crazy day. You were busy, you were tired. And you're like, no, I'm still going to meet you. Like you're just, you're willing to put yourself out there and to be that kind person for other people. And I think that that also shines through on stage and off of stage, but people yeah. see that in your performance as well. Like that energy comes through of you just being yourself. You're like, I'm up here, I'm doing me, I'm doing myself. And that's why people are drawn to you and enamored by you. Um, and I wanna jump a little bit into that exploration of like, has this started like having like little, little you know, boylesque drag babies being born along the way who are now able to express themselves. This is one of the most amazing things that I've seen happening lately, especially because now we've gone into Corona times and social media has been a, a means of connection and a, and a field that is broader than what it has been before. And yeah, um, since going to lockdown March of last year, I was suddenly connected with all these little baby queens everywhere. And the amount of messages that I received, the amount of love and connections that were made because of, well, me presenting myself as what I did, but also through my fitness classes that I was teaching, I suddenly discovered this entire network of people who um, 
who are alternative to the norm, like myself, especially when it comes to drag. And now it's becoming a thing in the in the boylesque community. We now have so many uh, newer performers coming out who are who are, you know, playing with the spectrum and really utilizing the the amazing colorful uh, possibility that there is to exist out there. And it makes me so incredibly happy and a little bit proud because you know I know that I've had a helping hand in one or two, but uh, but at the same time just it is becoming more visible and this style of, um, I guess, I could like to say hyper-gendered drag is, uh, is, is beginning to take off. And there are queens now all over the world who have, some, some of whom have emulated me or used me as their, their platform for diving into things um, or others who have come from it from their own places and backgrounds. And it is incredible to see and I am so excited to see what's going to happen once all these restrictions stop being in place, because I honestly feel that the arts and the kind of art that is going to come out of all of this is just going to be insanely amazing. I fully agree. I think people have had a lot of time to create mm -hmm. and to kind of like plan and do all these things. And like, there's going to be an explosion of energy that's like, people are like, I need to get this out there now. Because, I mean, it's like there was this time for people to sit down and they had to sit with themselves. And I think for a lot of people that was scary. But the amount of like inner knowledge, uh, learning, uh, acceptance, responsibility, like all these things that had to take place to survive, like call people off guard. And you're like, hey, I discovered that I was this or I discovered I was that or I had the ability to do this and this. And, you know, just the plethora of amazing opportunities that people have found within themselves to be or exist have now broadened so extensively. It's incredible. It's, it is. It's amazing. And I'm so looking forward to being able to travel again and coming and visiting you in Europe and seeing one of your shows because you have a place to stay. baby. <laughs> your shows are amazing. I do have one question that I'm curious about and I'm not attached to it because you play in this kind of like in between area that I love. Would there ever be a space for either yourself or somebody who has the similar aesthetic and style to do one of the drag races around the world? I certainly hope so. I mean, this is a question that I've been getting a lot. Would I ever do it? Considering now that recently we had the, the RuPaul's Drag Race down under. And yeah. my answer is yes, because... I think that whereas my strengths lie in what I do, which is this hypergendered in-betweenness, I feel that I am also capable of finding that spectrum that they talk of, but also somehow drawing them into mine. Mm -hmm. And I would like to be given the opportunity, I think, one day to prove that what I do is just as valid as anyone else. And I think that we need to be careful of kind of penciling things in because once again, it's like creating this little box that people think that this is what it is, but actually the magic lies when you color outside the lines and, you know, I, I to be given the opportunity to do that, I think would be an amazing um, thing. So I, I would say that. And I, I think agree. That, and I think that now with the, with the broadening spectrum of drag, as we know it, um, becoming so much more visible. I think there is place 
and now the time for people like myself and others to kind of show what we do. Yeah. And I think it's it's important for that visibility because we need to teach people that, you know, difference is okay. I mean, we're, we're the LGBTIQ plus community. We, we, our entire mantra is, you know, unity and diversity. So you right. know, why not, why not even in the art form? Right. I love that. And I'm so glad that that was your answer. Cause I'm like, Oh, this would be so great. And I could just see you doing so well. And it's so true that yes, you do amazing your, your stuff, but then they would, you know, you would also grow in those areas that you haven't maybe explored so much of that yeah. traditional side of it, but then also pull them into the beauty that you do. And I think like Got Mick comes to mind from the recent US version of, exactly. you know, yes. transgendered man who's like came in and just broke all these like barriers of the box that they were supposed to be put in. And it's just like, no. And that just opened the door for so many other people. And I love, I love seeing disruptors like that or people who, you know, are outside of the quote unquote norm of what the box is. And it's just like, yes. So I hope it's you get that chance. So one day. Necessary. It is so necessary. Like I cannot even describe how important it is that we have visibility of all of these things. And now, like, people coming onto Drag Race are being, like, the non-binary peoples. And I'm just like, yes! Like, visibility for the non-binary. Because I, people are so scared of this term. And I, it just frustrates me. Because it's like, what are you afraid of? It's, it's no different from us being different from the straight people. Like, it... it, it <laughs> people are afraid of what they don't know. It's just another modality of being. Yeah, yeah, people are afraid of what they don't understand or what they don't know, or maybe they're afraid of saying something wrong. But the only way we're going to get there is if we have the visibility, if we have the conversations, if we do things like this, where we open people, you know, people's minds and ideas and put things out there so that we have the safe space to have the conversation so that other people can go, okay, like the conversation's being had. We're not going to get it right 100% of the time, but at least we're here. We're willing to have the conversation. We're showing up, you know, that's the important that's part. That's the important part. And that's also what I say about what I do. Like if I'm going out in town and my friend's like, oh, but aren't you worried about people? And it's like, no, because they will have never seen anything like this. So how are they supposed to react? If we make it something that they see more often, then it's something that they will see and interact with. Once you have seen something like this, you can ask the important questions like, what is it? Why do they do that? How do they exist? What is this for? And, you know, you cannot have a conversation without any form of visibility and you can't have acceptance without any form of conversation. So, you know, someone has to be the one that holds up that flag and says, Hey, well, we've got to do this because this is something that is not being met or need or the need of which is being met. And so the understanding that that is necessary is just so important. It, but I, I think, but I think, you know, as a community, we are often very afraid of, venturing further than our own fences because we fought so hard to be in our own yard and that i think is one of the greatest downfalls of our community is that once we fought for our ability to exist we kind of forget that there's our neighborhood around us and they're just as as important and necessary as as us and without them we couldn't actually exist in in, in open honesty with ourselves because we're not allowing the same the same, not what's the word? The same rights, the same privileges, the same things that we now have to them. And it's like, who are we to deny anybody else of their ability to live in their truth when mm -hmm. we completely, you know, 
take for granted that people have fought for us. Like, that's not fair. That's not human. That's not right. I 100% agree. And I'm so grateful and that you are one of those brave souls who is like, uh, you know what? I see it. I have the flag. Cool. I'll take it. I'll run with it. You know, because you're going to get beat, beaten, battered and bruised knees and scraped up because it's like Brene Brown says, if you're in the arena, people are going to say things, they're going to throw things, you're going to get beaten up. But at least you're in the arena, at least you're doing the work, at least you're showing up because it's way harder to do that than to be on the sidelines in the cheap seats. So I fully would want I'm a full engager of life that it's like, I'm going to go in the arena and there's going to be times where it sucks, but I'd rather be there than sitting on the sidelines. Exactly. Yeah. Because, you know, silence is on the side of the oppressors. Right. This is the thing that we remember. <laughs> Human well. Rights Conference 2014. If you're, <laughs> if you're silent, you're on the side of the oppressors. <laughs> right. Well, Chris, it has been so lovely catching up with you and just seeing you and the light that you bring to the world. I just want to ask, where can people find you if they want to know more information, follow you, all that good stuff? Well, the first and I guess the easiest place to find me is on Instagram. That is where I do most of my um, socials from. Um, So that would be at Chris O with an H and official. So official, but with an H after the R. (laughs) Perfect. And I'll make sure we have that in the show link so that people can can find you. Because like I, you have to go and look at Chris's photos and videos. Like after hearing this conversation or watching this conversation, like go and you'll be like, oh my God, I get it. I totally get it now. Because it's a whole different adventure to go there. So in saying that, if you are watching this on YouTube, I want you to hit that subscribe button. Give us a thumbs up. um, Share it around with all your friends. Because the more that you share it around, the more people know about these amazing conversations we get to have if you're listening on um, podcast if on apple itunes give us a five star leave us a little a little comment we're going to start reading out um, all the comments and reviews at the beginning of each show and like i said we are going to be opening the gay men's brotherhood um, or gay men going deeper membership very shortly here in august so if you're interested in being part of that community hit up the wait list which is in the show notes as well and if you just want to join the free group you can join the gay men's brotherhood free facebook group where we have we hold the safe space to have these conversations so thank you so much chris for being on today (laughs) it has been an absolute delight oh thank you and i hope to get to see you soon somewhere in the world somehow somewhere in the world (laughs) we'll make it happen we'll make it happen